This is Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now here's your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hi, it's Dr. Michelle here, and thanks for joining us on the show. We have a great topic today as we discuss chronic inflammation and what you can do in your lives to mitigate its influences. How we live matters. Our everyday matters. We hear about the mind-body health connection, but what if I were to tell you that it really exists? Oftentimes, we give the reins of our own health to others to drive our ship called our health. But what if the person you're giving your power to doesn't care as much as you think they care. If they don't really know who you are, that's a sign. And what if they're not giving you the right and most meaningful answers? You have so much more power than you think, and you can change the environment of your own life and your health. All you have to do is want it, and when it's time and you're ready, you can consider these meaningful changes. But how you live every day, the fatigue that you feel, the stress that you feel, the constant list of things that you always have to do, running from one place to another but not exactly exercising, the anxiety that you feel, using your phone to disconnect, eating easy meals but not necessarily healthy, your sugar intake, your alcohol or drug intake, not exercising and not knowing what nature is, all of it contributes to your health. Does your health matter to you? because it begins with how you live your every day. My one year anniversary is coming up since I've quit my job. Stress is definitely a pervasive problem in primary care, but the way in which healthcare is structured, perhaps because you can't exactly bill for it like the other medical diagnoses, it's not treated as seriously as it should be. Stress is one of those things that contributes to chronic inflammation, the fire in your body where things eventually catch on fire and this is not in a good way. Stress can be from marital issues and relationships or family members, and oftentimes it seemed like it was from one's job or jobs. And seriously, these patients look so stressed, you didn't have to ask them to know. And you could tell that clearly something was wrong just by looking at them. Their sleep was affected, their eating, their energy level, their daily mood and affect. It would also affect their relationships in their lives. And one question that I had for my patients, and sorry for the bluntness, when your doc was seven minutes per office visit, I felt I had to be really clear with my language. I asked my patients, are you willing to die for your job? And this became a question I also asked myself. I hated the falsehood of primary care, pretending to want to care for people and really not helping anyone under the structure called healthcare. I oftentimes felt as if I were at crossroads, trying to do the right thing in the crappy circumstances. And my answer to my question ultimately became, no, I was not willing to die for my job. 
And I'm going to tell you something that I was feeling the last year of my career. I was having thoughts about how I was going to die if I were to continue my career. Maybe when you stare out in a windowless office, it can induce thoughts like this. And I don't mean kill myself. What I mean is I felt stuck in my life. It felt like a rut. I was imagining what kind of death I was calling unto myself, feeling so stuck, so unhappy, living without meaning, and not having time for anything, even my own family. Our health is not predetermined by genes alone. And next week, we'll have Dr. Bruce Lipton on the show to talk more about this. Just because you have certain genes does not mean it will be expressed. However, how we live our everyday, our environmental influences and stressors, and how we handle them determine our health outcomes. I was drawn to Dr. Monica Agarwal's book, Body on Fire, which she had written with Dr. Jyothi Rao because she writes about her own illness, what she feels led to her illness, and what she does every day to calm her illness and maintain her health. She describes her life before she got sick. She was overstressed, overburdened, not sleeping, postpartum, full-time doctor, still doing the mom duties for three kids, baking cupcakes for functions she couldn't attend, and exercising. I think many of us are that person, where we're exhausted and stretched so thin that we're too exhausted to know that we're exhausted or that such a thing actually exists. Like I said on a prior podcast, I didn't even know I was having chest pain from anxiety until it went away. Sometimes with how we live our day-to-day, we don't realize that there will be a consequence. But if you knew there eventually will be a consequence, would you live your day-to-day a little differently? Acute inflammation is actually a good thing. When there's a mountain lion in front of you, you want to rev up your stress hormones so that you ultimately get the hell out of there as fast as you can so that you survive. When you have an infection and all the inflammatory cells and markers gather around the site where your infection entered, that's actually a good thing so that you keep the infection at bay and it doesn't have to be worse than it does and your body fights it. But while acute inflammation is good, chronic inflammation is not. Your bodily resources are utilized to deal with inflammation. But if inflammation is never turned off, Our bodies only have so much reserve and our bodies become imbalanced. I believe most of us live our lives in the chronic inflammatory state. Stresses have many external sources. It could be the people in your life, your job, lack of sleep, lack of activity, the death of a loved one, chronic illness or injury, pollution, and it could be what we put into our mouths. And as Dr. Agrawal and Dr. Rao point out, Stress also comes from the foods we ingest, such as processed foods, meat, and dairy. And how we handle these stressors matter. I love the title of their book, Body on Fire, because in my blunt way of talking, it really gets to the point. When the body becomes imbalanced, it becomes irritated and inflamed. As they write in their book, the immune system goes into overdrive and switches from a controlled system into a wild, overcharged system that can start hurting itself. It can start attacking its own organs. This inflammation over time ultimately leads to illness. Inflammation manifests differently in everyone. Some people have stomach complaints, 
constipation, abdominal pain, and diarrhea. Some people experience fatigue, weight gain, and depression. Others develop autoimmune disease, such as multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, and inflammatory bowel disease. Still others develop cancer and heart disease. I really mean this, since I was a primary care doctor and am still a doctor. You are the very rare patient if you've heard about the chronic inflammatory state as a patient. And good for you that you found a doctor like that. Chronic inflammation may be the biggest reason why we're getting sick, why we get sick. The rates of chronic illnesses such as diabetes, heart disease, autoimmune disease, and cancer have risen significantly over the last several decades. My friends, my podcast listeners, with the proper knowledge and determination, we can calm chronic inflammation so that sickness doesn't happen. And it's not a one-day kind of calming. It's an everyday kind of calming. It's a lifestyle. But what if this lifestyle helps you to maintain your good health so that you're living your best life and you're always preparing for your best life? How you live matters. Invite what you want into your life. I know that making these changes in our lives can seem and feel drastic. And even in my own life, these changes are a work in progress for me. But I am aware. I'm definitely consciously eating more plants and have significantly decreased my meat consumption. But I still have fish, and I decided that sometimes, if I want prosciutto, that's my choice. But at the same time, I'm not grinding my teeth every day like I once did. I don't wake up angry and go to bed angry and exhausted. I am finding and working towards my balance, and I am aware. I'm so excited to have Dr. Agarwal on the show today. Her book, Body on Fire, is a great and informative read, so relevant to our lives and health. We can trigger inflammation in our bodies, and we can also calm inflammation that's causing sickness in our bodies. She is a cardiologist, author, and athlete. While she is a traditionally trained physician, she took a different path and chose to heal herself through diet and lifestyle and lives symptom-free and medicine-free from rheumatoid arthritis. It was through her own painstaking illness that she learned to use her diet as a weapon in treatment and prevention of future disease and is using this information to empower others. You can find her at drmonicaargowal.com. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Agawal. I'm so truly honored. And welcome to Lost or Found. Thanks so much. I appreciate being here. appreciate you having me. Wonderful. And before we begin, can you tell us about yourself? Uh, sure. So uh, I am a, cardiolo- a preventive cardiologist at the University of Florida. Um, I focus on an integrative practice where I teach people about advanced or a work with patients who have advanced heart disease, but I also implement, um, besides, along with medications, I implement a lot of lifestyle-based approaches like meditation and uh, exercise, uh, and specifically and most important, maybe arguably most importantly, nutrition. Um, I am a mom of three kids, and I um, am an an avid athlete and always trying to do more things than I should. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, I really loved reading your book, Body on Fire. Can you tell us what inspired you to write that book? 
with Dr. Jyothi Rao. <laughs> sure, sure. So um, Jyothi is a good friend of mine, um, and we wrote that book together. She's an internist like yourself. Um, uh, Body on Fire was a culmination and sort of, you know, as people reflect at on times of their lives where there are moments of darkness and sphere, um, that came about during one of those moments for me. So um, I have uh, advanced rheumatoid arthritis, and I was diagnosed after I had my third child. Um, and I had a lot of anger and sadness when I went through that period. And um, the funny thing that I learned from that whole experience was that I learned how to be such a better doctor when I got sick. And so that book is sort of what I learned in order to um, heal my own body. And I wanted, when I, when I learned it, I thought, how to come, we went, I went through 12 years of training and I never learned anything about lifestyle and the importance of lifestyle uh, until I did it on my own. And I felt like it was such an important aspect of healing. Um, so we wrote that book to kind of get educate, get, give people the education that they need to sort of empower them to heal their own bodies. But it was also a tribute to my third daughter, my third child, who I, um, I, I, I often blamed for the reason I got sick. And it was uh, because of her that I learned to heal. And she was truly um, the one who saved me. And so there's a chapter in that book that talks about how my daughter saved me. And um, it was to honor her. So you know, I think there's so many people that look at times in their life that are sad and dark and feel confusion and fear. And I think that, um, yes, uh, I think that those things can confound and complicate things. But I think that so many times those times are the most defining of our lives. And that is the uh, that's when the inspiration for Body and Fire came about. I think that's so beautiful. If I may ask you, why do you think you got sick? Sure. So um, post-pregnancy uh, uh, is a high time of inflammation and hormonal change. Uh, and so many people will develop symptoms of autoimmune disease after pregnancy, which is not actually well known. I don't have any genetic, you know, um, I didn't have a genetic I don't have family history of rheumatoid arthritis. At least I don't think so. Um, we haven't been able to find any. But for some reason, I carry the genetic code for rheumatoid arthritis. Now, why I triggered and became inflamed at the time I did, well, I think it's because I was totally unhealthy and I was overstressed and overburdened and and my hormones were totally shifted in, in pregnancy. And I think those are the times that are typically the times when uh, we activate um, we activate and express our our illnesses. That's kind of interesting because it's kind of like the perfect storm at that very moment. It is. So, you know, often I, when I give lectures on this, I often teach people, so look, we, you know, we always have our genes, right? You can't change your genetic code. It is what you were born with, but you can change what we call the epigenetics or the, the milieu around the gene. So the expression of the gene or what is going to actually be displayed or expressed doesn't necessarily have to be 
you can suppress things and inflame things based on sort of your lifestyle. And so what you can do with your lifestyle is so, so why, for instance, why did I get RA or rheumatoid arthritis after my third kid? Why didn't I get it earlier in life? Why didn't I get it later in life? Well, it's because you have triggered so much inflammation in your body. And it's at those times that often genes are expressed and you're going to see the illnesses present themselves. I mean, when I was diagnosed with RA. I was sleeping four hours a night. I was working as a full-time cardiologist. I had three kids under four years old. Um, and I was trying to be everything. I was trying to puree sweet potatoes at midnight. I was running, running for exercise and I was trying to make cupcakes in the morning for my kids for their birthday parties at school. Um, but I wouldn't even be there. I'd be making them at night and then I'd be gone in the morning before I even got to show the kids the cupcakes that I made. It's a crazy life of intensity. I was answering heart attack calls while I was nursing a baby. And, you know, you just, um, our capacity to endure and do continues to expand. You can do so, so much more than you think. But there is a point where the body will will start unraveling. And I think that's something that people don't realize. I certainly didn't. When I was in my 20s, I definitely thought that I could do anything. Uh, you feel invincible. You feel like, you know what? It's okay if I don't sleep so much or I eat poorly now. I'll fix it later. But what we don't realize is that all of those life changes and the things that we do our whole life matter. It, all of that matters. Like all the things that you do when you're younger. Now, once in a while you screwed up, you did this or that. We've all done that. But it's this chronic sort of repetitive uh, I can do more than I can attitude that unfortunately catches up and it all catches up to all of us in different ways. Um, but we just have to sort of learn to nurture our bodies and our souls or whatever you want to call it, your minds, um, more. I think you really bring up a great point because I think in our society, we live, we, in our Western society, we live from such deficit, like doing so much or that stress is some kind of badge of honor or even like in our medical training, like working 36 hour shifts and saying that. Oh, yeah. I mean, how many times yeah. did I used to say, uh, slept four hours last night, pulled an all nighter. Oh, I had 15 this and that's in the hospital. I had to do this many procedures. I mean, it is, it's a badge of honor. It's crazy what we say and what we do. And, you know, when we tell people we took a nap or we slept, it was noted and is noted often as a sign of weakness. And that's a true tragedy. And I will tell you in the last five or seven years, maybe longer since I've been on my journey, I happily tell my faculty colleagues that I'm tired. I have to go. I need to take a nap or I need to take, I am going to bed. I need to go to bed at 10 o'clock. Yes, that's what I do. Do I go to bed at 10 o'clock? Yes, I do. Uh, you know, and so, I, yeah, you know, I don't. I, I have learned to carry my nurturing myself as my badge of honor. It's taken years to understand that this is something to be proud of. Um, but I finally am there. I totally agree with you because I think ultimately what you're saying is that ultimately all of that stuff that you're doing too much of can catch up with you and will catch up with you. That's right. Yeah. Like when I was a resident, like I had no time. I was so tired. I would buy canned foods from 7-Eleven just to survive. And that, you know, that forms such bad habits. And then you're not really surviving. 
Well, I know. And then, you know, I remember the ramen, people who bring those ramen cup of noodle things, and that's what everybody would eat when they were on call and just doing what they had to do. And it's not that, you know, I also don't want the perception to be like, you know what, that every, I mean, everybody goes through bad stuff, you know, and you sometimes you just have to put your own health and your own body and it needs to be put aside. In, in short bursts of time, our bodies can totally handle that. And it's really not about those acute episodes. You know, there's an injury in the family, somebody's sick, you have to manage that person, you have to help with that person. You have a small baby, you're not sleeping well. That's, a, that's okay. Those are short bursts. What I'm talking about is sort of the chronic damage to our bodies. I mean, this is years and years of just putting your bodies through so much. And that's, that's the true tragedy is that we don't honor our bodies enough and uh, no longer will I be that person. um, And I'm proud of it. Yeah. I love that because I really think that when we don't say no, like a lot of bad stuff can occur, including illnesses and diseases. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have known, unfortunately, probably more so than people would like me to say, you know, people ask me to do talks all of the time at the hospital and all. And I have to be really selective because and not because I don't want to do those talks. It's just that there's only so much capacity and you have to really know sort of what you're able to do. And if you can't do it, you have to be able to say it's okay you know, forgive yourself for what you cannot do. And sometimes I tell myself, I said, I forgive myself for what I cannot do uh, and that it's okay. I love that. May I ask you, you know, rheumatoid arthritis is sometimes a really pain, it's a painful illness and many people are on multiple medications. How's your level of pain? So I don't have pain. Um, I have not had any inflammation of rheumatoid arthritis. Well, I'll, I'll take that with one caveat. Um, so I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis uh, nine and a half years ago, and I uh, stopped taking all of my RA medications probably eight and a half years ago, um, maybe eight years ago, eight or eight and a half years ago, somewhere around there. And I haven't been on medication since. And so I haven't had any inflammation, thank goodness, um, since I, um, since the beginning. So with that, the caveat that I would give is that my, uh, hi baby. Um, uh, the caveat that I would give is that, um, post COVID, I, I had COVID back in January and I did develop some, um, joint pain temporarily, um, which, you know, definitely is unsettling. Um, but that has since resolved. Okay. What do you think contributed to your healing then? Yeah. So what contributed to my healing? I think a lot of things, it was not just one thing, you know, people often, depending on sort of what people's strongest belief is, they'll say, well, wasn't it this or, well, yeah, I think it was a lot of different things. I, I don't think that one thing is enough. And, you know, as somebody who's a very uh, a strong advocate for plant-based eating as I am, I don't always think that every there's one cocktail for every person. I mean, you have to, um, everybody has slight modifications in what they can and cannot eat. And then it's not just the diet for me. I think that you have to really work on your stress. Um, so, you know, I always tell people like there's an, there's a, there's like a scale in everyone's body and these are the resources and these are the demands and the resources, the demands are what everybody can think of. Well, gosh, work, stress at home, uh, lack of sleep, lack of activity, poor diet, not drinking enough fluids, just that constant anxiety. Those things are our demands. 
And then we have all these resources, which is not what nobody really remembers that we have, but things like healthy, clean eating, uh, more fluids, meditation, exercise, um, and all those stress reduction techniques um, that we have. And all of those things are our resources. Uh, and we've just sort of forgotten that. So what did the things that helped me? Well, I would say all of that. I changed everything. I uh, always was an active person and I always was running even through all my pregnancies. Um, but I had to learn actually to slow down and to stop and say, it's okay not to exercise today and to allow my body to heal. Um, I had to learn to, so I started doing loads of yoga um, and that yoga was life altering for me. And it was so good because what I love most about yoga, some people do it because, oh, they get so toned. And yes, you will get toned. And yes, you would become more flexible. But what I love the most about yoga is how much it calms me. It's a single focus activity that you have to do. And uh, the type of yoga I do, you always are focusing on your steps and your word. There's no guide. And so because of that, I really have to be present in my practice. And so I love that in that when I'm done, I feel like I'm in sort of this trance state. It's, in, it's incredible. So I would say that yoga was a very instrumental part for me. But, you know, I also learned to sleep, which was not something that I... It's not that I didn't like sleeping. I've always loved to sleep, but I didn't ever make time for it. So I, and I started eating 100% plant-based and not just sort of, you know, there are a lot of plant-based foods that are not very good for us, but I learned to eat healthy plant-based foods. Um, and I learned how to eat natural probiotics, how to eat anti-inflammatory foods. And every single day, that is my focus because I never want to go back to being as sick as I was, which I was, I was very sick and I was very broken. And uh, I never want to go back there. So people often ask me, how do you eat this way? Or how do you do everything so perfect? Well, first of all, I don't. I'm not perfect. I've never been perfect. I just do the best I can. Every day is, is a work in progress. Um, but why do I keep on this path? Well, I keep on this path because at the end of the day, I never want to go back to being sick. And I never want to, I never, and you know, the worst part is, is so much of the time in order to help people, we have to, um, in order to help people, we have to almost, it's like, almost like we have to get sick in order to heal. And I just, you know, there's so much of the time, I'm always thankful to see patients in my clinic that are younger who haven't gotten sick, but have some like already starting to show signs of breakdown. And those are the patients I love, really love working with because there's so much I can do to say, look, this is the time we can really get you before you get sick. Let's just calm this inflammation down. You know, it's so funny, you know, you, your phone, you're so good. If you have a 7% charge or your computer's dying, you run to find a plug uh, and restore it. But what do we do for ourselves? What do we do to restore ourselves on a daily basis? If you tell somebody you had a of tea and just sat out and stared at the at the trees or the sunset, uh, people would laugh and say, wait, well, you just did that by yourself? Like you didn't read a book or read something or catch up on your email or catch up your phone? Like, well, why isn't it okay? And why don't we take time to sort of restore ourselves in that way? So I did all of those things. I really had to learn to shut off and to forgive myself for what I could not do. I find that so interesting because you bring up so many great important points. I think even in terms of like the way healthcare is delivered right now, the thing, the area that we're not working on enough is prevention. I think it's very, very 
unfortunately, um, ignored. And then the other idea that, you know, I think in our society, we think medication is a pill or it's in a pill form. But really, what if the actual medication is, like you say, restoration, balance? That's something, I mean, it's hard, but it's something amazing and curative in itself. It's super complicated. I mean, I there was a cardiologist I used to work with, um, and he used to tell me, uh, he used to say, Monica, you stick with your plants and meditation and all your foo-foo, and I will take my, I will eat my steak and have my Crestor too. And, you know, so, so much of the time, Crestor is a cholesterol medication for those of you who aren't aware. And so, you know, what you know, that's such a complex thing to say because people don't realize, first of all, that there's that the stuff that I'm doing, the plants, the eating, right, the working, that's those are my medicines. Those are what I'm doing to heal my body. And that Crestor, while it does decrease your cholesterol, it doesn't decrease or cut out all the other negative effects that red meat eating does. And so, so much of the time we think, well, if I take this medicine, I'm going to stop this problem from happening. But everything you do to your body has multiple facets. And so much of the time, the pills that we take are only healing or treating one facet. And that's a fundamental point that I think people need to realize. I mean, the other thing I would say is that, you know, you, you brought up preventive care versus um, um, the current situation. Yes, the current situation in America and arguably around the world, but more so in America, the way our system is based on, is based on acuity-based care. So in other words, hospitals do better as a system if they send more patients for surgery or patients for stents um, or heart stents or they... Um, give more and see patients more often. That's acuity-based care. And so basically the more acute you are and more sick you are, the better the hospital does. You know, that's that's a fundamental flaw in this in system. terms of financially, you mean, right? Financially, correctly, correct. And so that's the saddest the tragedy. So prevention, which takes a little bit more time and effort on the doctor's part and on the patient's part, is not as lucrative. And it's not as lucrative for hospitals. And so they choose not to focus on prevention. And that's truly a, a great tragedy uh, in healthcare in America. I totally agree. It's such a tragedy. And, you know, in terms of like the medications, let's be honest, like most people are not compliant with their medications. And sometimes, you know, medications, like you say, it's kind of like the imagery that I have in my mind. It's kind of like a sinking boat. It's like a boat with a hole in it. And you're just putting your finger in that hole, but eventually you can't put it in that hole anymore. Yeah, I love that analogy. It's exactly right. Uh, and um, uh, it, it's a great, it's it's very sad. And, you know, but I, I, what I want people to come away from from this conversation isn't, yes, this is, we're all in trouble. Everything's going down. It's a sinking ship. I want people to come out of this empowered and say, you know what? Yes, you know what, my doctors are doing the best they can with the system that they're in, but the focus needs to be on prevention and healing of my body. And what is it that I'm going to do to heal myself and make myself the best I can be? And if it's not with the doctor you're with, find the right doctor. And if it's not with, you know, you're doing things in your life, I always tell patients to make a, a list. And this is hard for a lot of people is I would like you to make a list, for instance, and it's worth, it's an, a worthwhile exercise. What is it in your life that gives you joy? And then when you do that, you know, I find that people often struggle with that question a lot. 
And then I tell, ask people to write a list of well, what do people do because they have to, because of their financial situation. And then you make a list of the things, well, what do you do because you think you should? And then when you make those lists, it's very interesting to find, you know, we can't avoid that we all have to make money in order to survive. But so much of the time, and when you make your own list, you might find that many of the things you do because you think you should, or you just do because you just do, and you're not really sure. And when you look at that list, you find that you're, the, the list of what you should do is so long and the joy list is so tiny. Um, I've had patients start crying when I've asked them that question about what gives them joy. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because there's so much of, of optimism and hope and excitement. All of that's important in terms of your mentality and how you will try to heal your body. If you aren't optimistic and hopeful about things, then you also won't heal your body because you're not going to care and you won't believe that you can make the changes you can make. And so when I wake up in the morning and when I go to my Pilates class, I thank my body. I thank it every day and I say thank you so much for what you've given me today. I know that was a hard class, and but I'm going to do a little bit more tomorrow. And so every time you have to sort of have this, like, I am here, I'm in this moment, and I want to heal, and I want to keep myself healthy, and I want to do whatever I have to do to do it. I love that because I really do feel that joy is like a better driver for healthcare than feeling like you're drowning. Absolutely. There, make, the, make the list. It's a worthwhile list. Uh, I have a gratitude journal or a journal that I use to consider the things that are in my life. And it forces me to really consider on a daily basis what I do and don't do. And it helps me shape the career that I've had. That's wonderful. May I ask you, do you think chronic illnesses, including heart disease, have a common origin, even if the manifestation is different? Absolutely. I mean, that's a, a fundamental concept for me, which is that every illness, you know, we like we all have a genetic, as we sort of talked about earlier, we all have a genetic predisposition to a certain illness. But the activation of that illness is not going to happen unless there's inflammation. And so if you inflame or irritate your, I always tell people inflammation or why we call the title of the book body on fire is because of inflammation. Your body's mad at you. And so why is inflammation bad? Well, inflammation isn't bad in a short burst, as we talked about those short periods of time during acute stress. That's totally normal and appropriate, but it's that long years and years of impact and chronic stress on our bodies that triggers inflammation. Well, then what inflammation does is that it activates your genes and your genes get expressed. And so you then manifest with illness. So then if you, if you, it, but everybody's going to get something slightly different, but depending on what their genetic predisposition is and depending on what lifestyle um, issues they've had along the way or what they've done or not done. Um, so some people will manifest with heart disease and some people will manifest with malignancy or cancer and some people will have autoimmune disease. But each person sort of, but these are all sort of the foundation of, of which is inflammation. And so the key is to calm your inflammation. So if we always focus on the end result, which is the heart disease or the malignancy or the uh, autoimmune disease, well, yes, that will be effective. Um, but wouldn't it be interesting and neater and more effective if we calm the inflammation? Because then we could then potentially not express our illness or we could decrease the, uh, the illness expression or decrease the severity. I think that's really interesting because as we know, like cancers and heart disease, the inflammation and the oxidative stress that you talk about, it's like, 
it's a cause of like much of what our society suffers from and a lot of stuff that Western medicine doesn't know what to do with. Like even anxiety and depression or chronic fatigue or insomnia or brain fog, you know, like if the, a lot of times in medicine, having been a primary care doctor, if the test results are normal, a lot of times we don't do too much and counseling is so hard to get. But just because the tests are normal doesn't mean that, you know, what you're feeling as a patient is normal. <laughs> I think that's a really, I'm glad you said that. And I, I think such an important thing. And that's something Jyothi talks about all the time, which is that um, she often says that, you know, it's so funny because patients come in with all these symptoms and we do a bunch of tests and we do the tests and they all come back normal and say, guess what? You're fine. Good luck. And, um, but wait. Then you sort of say, okay, I guess I'm fine. You walk out of there saying, I'm fine. Everything is fine. And so for a little while, you you kind of carry that euphoric feeling of I'm fine, I'm fine, and feel better. But then those same feelings come back because we never dealt with the problem. And again, it's always so much about just so many demands on our body and really not enough resources. And we're just not learning how to be optimistic and hopeful, not learning how to um, be positive, to be active, to eat, put the right foods in our body. And they're all inter connected. For instance, just think about how if you eat something that's high, I don't know, uh, when if I were to eat something really with refined carbohydrates or um, you, um, or if I drank too much of a certain type of food or my stomach's uncomfortable, I feel down. I mean, there are foods that can make you feel down and feel kind of lethargic. Um, and then you don't do as much in terms of your activity, right? And then you don't feel hopeful or as excited because you, and it all came back to that food. But what if you had chosen a different food? Um, maybe then all those other things would have felt a little bit better. And then it's a cycle because when you eat better and you exercise more and you feel better, you eat better. So, you know, they all are interconnected and you really need to focus on all facets. I love that. And I think the truth is it matters. Like even before we know it, like the title of your book, your body will tell you before you even know your body's telling you a message when you don't feel good. Yes, it does. I mean, you really need to listen to how your stomach feels. I mean, so much of our feelings in our gut and how much our health is manifested first in our gut. And so I really emphasize to people, well, how are your bowels? You know, are they normal? Are they coming? Are you have regular bowel movements? What are they like? I mean, probably the only cardiologist that talks about stool, but I think it's super important to talk about um, the gut. Now, how did that make you feel? Or did it make you feel bloated? Did it make you feel uncomfortable? You know, these are important feelings and you have to learn to listen to your body. It's so true. How do you feel about Dean Ornish's early work that lifestyle modifications, including eating a plant-based diet, moving more, stressing less, having better connections with people can reverse heart disease? So Dean is, a, first of all, fabulous, and he's a pioneer in the area of focusing on other processes like that include, I mean, bringing, making people and bringing lifestyle into the forefront. The initial study that he did, the Lifestyle Heart Study, you know, does have some, a lot of people criticize that study and they criticize it because um, maybe the debate of whether there was true plaque regression is unclear. I think and it also was done during a time when medications were not as accessible. Uh, and so these are the criticism you'll get from scientists. Um, as somebody who lives in that science world, that's why I bring that up. At the same time, my argument to that is that even though we can't say definitively that we can cause plaque regression, or but we could certainly cause halting of 
any ill, you know, halting of the plaque. And so I think that's the thing to focus on is that all what we can show is that all these lifestyle changes, they work, they at least at least cause plaque stabilization, stop progression if they don't at least in you know whether you want to argue or discuss on the science you know the science of whether there's regression that's another topic for another day but dean um dean's work is amazing because he's the first person one of the first people to sort of remind us that lifestyle matters it matters what you do to your body every single day and your job is is in this world is to nurture it and, you know, in our medical care, um, you know, for cardiac, for, for stenting to occur or to consider bypass surgery, um, the plaques have to be greater than 70%. But for those of those people who have plaques that are 30%, you know, I think that's a key. That's, I think lifestyle modifications would help all people, but especially those where, you know, procedures are not deemed necessary at that point when it's like smaller. Yeah, so I think that that's um, one thing that we talk a lot about in our clinic is that the people, like most 60 and 70-year-olds, are going to have some plaque in their heart. And not everyone, but many are. And so, but they're going to have maybe 10, 15% plaques, those kind of smaller plaques, depending on sort of how they live their life. And so what I try to remind people, it's not really to focus on how many little plaques of whatever I have in my heart, as much as to focus on how to prevent that, whatever you do have in there from getting worse. And you aren't going to have any symptoms exactly right, unless you have a, a, a massive heart attack, which is a different problem. But most people who get angina, um, they're going to get angina after they get 70% stenosis, as you said, when they're 70% blockage. And so most people who have, you know, when you have a 30 or 40% lesion, as you pointed out, you're not going to have any symptoms. So the key always is lifestyle changes because you want to prevent that plaque from progressing. And so often I tell patients, well, you know, they say, well, can I get this test done or that test? And I'll say, okay, we could get that test, but what's that going to do? And like, well, if it it might show me if I have plaque. I'm like, okay, well, we can do that test. If that getting that test and seeing that plaque helps you change your lifestyle, then let's do it. But a lot of times just seeing that plaque there doesn't change what I'm going to do, which means that, okay, we're still going to use really good medication and really good lifestyle techniques to make you better. How do you feel about animal fat, including dairy? Um, so I'm, I don't uh, eat uh, animal fat at all or any animal products. I'm not a fan of animal products. Um, uh, I think that is there a role for a little bit of fish? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Um, in general, I think that there is absolutely no role in anyone's life for any red meat. Uh, I don't think that we need to be eating poultry. Um, and um, I don't have find any role for dairy. I think dairy is very pro-inflammatory. And that's probably, for me personally, one of the worst things for my body. So I have had no dairy in almost nine years. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, that's what I would say. It's like red. So when I talk to patients, they mm -hmm. say, well, how, how is this going to how do I, you know, I can't do that. And like, okay, well, what, what do you think you can do? And so it's not about telling people who, who may be listening to this podcast to say, this is how you are a meat and potatoes guy. Cause I'm from Florida. So I see a lot of people who say, ma'am, I, I eat meat and potatoes. And I say, okay, well, 
it's not about getting those patients and saying, okay, I need you to eat no plants. And so I, because that's never going to, that doesn't happen. I mean, there are some people who can do that, but most people can't. So what I try to focus on in my clinics is to say, look, my goal is to get you towards eating more plants. That's my goal. And so if you can cut out, let's start with getting rid of all of your red meat. And that's usually what we start with is cut out all of your red meat. Like, okay, well, what do you mean? You know, so we go through, well, that means no steak. That means no, even no pork, even though people like to call that sort of a leaner or lighter meat um, and, you know, sort of cutting out sort of the ruminants. Um, And then um, sometimes I'll just start there. And then that's as much as we get to. And then we slowly, gradually move towards eating more plants. The goal for me, for me personally, I will never go back to eating animal products. I think that they are not healthy. I do not advocate them. At the same time, I also believe that we have to meet people where they are. And so, and try to slowly bring them closer to the eating more plants. Uh, And that's what I do in my clinic. I say, okay, I understand let's just try to get you to a little bit closer to this con- to this point. So even just starting with cutting out red meat is a very good way to start. How do you feel about yogurt? Yogurt is interesting. You know, yogurt is probably in some of the studies is really kind of been a neutral effect because, you know, it, it, even though it is a dairy product, it is, it has all that natural bacteria in there. Um, and so it, it has sort of probiotic effect. I personally prefer, um, in terms of natural probiotics to eat foods like sauerkraut and kimchi, uh, or tempeh, which are all natural probiotics where I don't have to have any dairy. Interesting. You know, I, I love this case that you guys presented in the book, because I think this is an indication of how great of a doctor you are. It's the case about the, <laughs> the 65-year-old who, um, I guess, came in with rectal bleeding. And um, I guess he was also having chest pain as well. And he was found to be severely anemic and found to have diverticular disease. And he did the stress test in the hospital. And, it, it, you know, he had some areas of ischemia. It was recommended at the time that he go for a cardiac cath, but he wanted to talk with you. And you had recommended working on his diet, having a very strict diet and working on the diverticular disease, which I think is like a really profound recommendation because I think most would not have recommended that. Yeah, you know, that that was a that was a really good man that I was taking care of in Baltimore and he was being seen at a hospital, not my hospital. And so a lot of times that happens and all over where people get seen and then they call the primary doctor. And so, um, yeah, you know, he was re- he was having um, bright red blood out of his bottom, which um, was consistent with his endoscopy or colonoscopy showed big pockets of diverticula. So diverticular disease is a, a is a functional problem that happens from low fiber. If you don't eat enough fiber, your gut, your colon or your gut is not going to be strong. And if you eat um, low fiber, you then, if you don't get enough fiber to keep your colon strong, you get these pockets that they look like little cups almost. And what happens is that sometimes those pockets, because they're thinner, they bleed and then you get, you can have bleeding in your bottom. And so, you know, that, I think it was such a, such a people that was a classic example of a doctor chasing a little bit of his tail because yes, he was bleeding, which then caused him to be anemic, which then developed chest pain. So remember that if there's anemia, there's going to be a demand on the heart, not enough flow. And so there was chest pain. So, but his thought was that, okay, well, if he's person's having chest pain in your mind, the algorithm says chest pain, heart disease, stress test. 
Well, okay, well, so what if you do that? You do that stress test and carry that through and you find an abnormal stress test and you get a heart catheterization and you have a blockage in your heart. So what? So then you're going to put that person on a stent, give them a stent and put them on aspirin and Plavix, right? And so that's what I explained to him. I said, okay, so I'm going to, what if we do this cath and we put the stent in and we put you on aspirin and Plavix, what's going to happen? Well, remember that the primary problem was that they have very thin little pockets in their colon and they're going to bleed. And so then that person's going to bleed and bleed and bleed and we're not going to stop the aspirin and Plavix. And have we made anybody better, right? Then they're going to get anemic again and then they're going to have chest pain despite the stent, or maybe they won't get chest pain, but they'll definitely get anemic. And so you'll have them on these blood thinners to cure that stent, but the primary problem was they kept bleeding. And so the solution to those patients and to that patient in particular was to heal the diverticular disease. And so what I did was, is I put them on a very, um, again, everybody gets an individualized diet plan when they come to see me. And that's what we did, a very specific plan. I think within six weeks, he called me and he was like, doc, I got to talk to you about something. And I was like, okay, what, what did I do? And he says, well, the problem is I, I'm pooping all of the time. And I was like, oh my God, stop. Because they had put him on the doctors at the hospital, the other hospital had put him on all these stool softeners, which is not what we need. You know, yes, stool softeners work, but there's so many things you can do with your diet. So as he changed his diet, all of a sudden he didn't need those stool softeners. So we stopped the stool softeners, of course, and he was, then he was on, he was having regular bowel movements and, you know, he had no more chest pain. And then we repeated the stress test and I don't remember the exact timing, but we repeated the stress test and the stress test was normal. Well, why was the stress test normal? Well, when we improved the blood flow all over to his heart and there wasn't anemic again, the flow was adequate. He could start being active again and he never needed a stent. At least it's been, I don't know, six years and he has not been stented. Um, and so no metal in his chest, not on extra medicines. He eats well and no diverticular disease. Yeah. I love that because that's so outside the box, you know, because I feel like a lot of times you practice so much band-aid medicine but that's just so outside the box. And I feel like that's true healing. That's the art of healing. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm proud of how he's doing. And um, I'm thrilled that he did not require anything. And it's not that I'm against stenting or heart surgery or procedures. I certainly send patients for those procedures um, when needed. But I think that my threshold for going there is when I, when I think that I have failed aggressive other therapies and I, I just can't. I can't do it fast enough. And sometimes people will need procedures done. And so I get a lot of second opinion calls all the time where I see patients to say, so-and-so told me I needed a cath or a stent and, or I need heart surgery. What do you think? Well, that's one of my primary consults. Um, and uh, many times I say, no, you don't. And, but there are sometimes I do. I say, no, I think this is the right decision. This is what I would recommend. Or let's modify it because I think we can get away with just doing this, stop there, and then see if we've done if we've improved things enough and then we'll see if we have to go further and to even recommend lifestyle changes even after like a stent was placed because i don't even think we're doing that well enough either you know we're better than we used to be. I mean, we have now cardiac rehab programs, but cardiac rehab programs are not well attended, unfortunately. Also, most of the time, because I don't think we do a very good job at rehab programs, despite them actually being good, they're well reimbursed. Um, but I don't think that, because most people who are running cardiac rehab programs don't understand that it's not just about the movement and they have to work on so many things. And that's part of why Dean did such a nice job 
um, which is that he implemented all of those facets. And so in average traditional cardiac rehab, where they just focus on exercise, again, which is what most rehabs do around the country, they have about a 30 to 35% retention where people do the entire rehab program after a stent is put in. Whereas Dean and his program had, because he added in so many other parts of it where people developed a community and there was a lot of conversation about love and respect and exercise and movement and the importance of sleep and all of these uh, nutrition and all these other facets, he had over 90, 90% retention. And so people just don't realize that that's such a huge part, but continue to focus on these one area, like as if one thing is going to fix everything. Yeah, I think it's important to feel better as a whole, not just one aspect, but to feel better as a whole, as a human being, the complicated being that we are, you know. <laughs> I really respected what you wrote in your book, that sometimes the key to good health is eliminating, not adding, and diets of stress. That's such a profound comment, because how many times do we add in medicine, you know? Absolutely. Uh, it's one of my greatest things to do is when people come in, I have a lot of patients who come in on, um, you know, because I, I do attract a lot of patients who want an, an alternative or natural path, but then they may come in on like 40 nutraceuticals. And so that's another thing that I often have to focus on is tell people, well, nutraceuticals are medications too. And what do we know about this medicine or that medication? And so, so much of the time I'm able to reduce people's nutraceuticals down significantly because some of the stuff they're taking is redundant. Some of the things that they're taking don't have any data. Um, and, you know, nutraceuticals is a $450 million business. Um, and so unfortunately that's another area that bothers me is that there's so much we, yes, it's, there's not, it's not that there isn't a benefit to some of the nutraceuticals that we have out there, but so much of the time we're just taking too much of everything. We're just trying to support our bodies with pills, 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 whether they come in plant form and they're more quote unquote natural, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if I think the distinction is all that strong. You know, I really want people to focus on all the other things that they can do to heal their bodies. That's amazing. I think lifestyle changes are so powerful and profound, but they're really hard to do. How do you help your patients comply with uh, the lifestyle changes? Yeah, you know, I, I, I hear that a lot, that it's hard. Yeah, I mean, change is hard. Uh, there's no question, but you know, again, meeting people where they are is the key. And so a lot of times I've asked patients who have been, who, so I have a board in my office of patients who've changed their life so people can get, then can see other people that look like them. And some of the times I'll ask those patients, I'll say, you know, you listen to me, you've heard me, what is it that really helped you make the changes? Because I like to learn from my patients too. Like, why did I do better with you and not with so-and-so? And so much of the time they'll say stuff like it's because you didn't push it on us or they'll say, because you didn't make me exercise for 45 minutes, you just asked me to exercise for five, you know? And so some of the times that's the key is that you can't push people to say, well, the guidelines tell us that we need to be exercising for 45 to 60 minutes, three to five days a week. Well, or 75 minutes of high intensity exercise. Well, first of all, what does that even mean? Number two, like every, nobody has any idea. And that's the problem is that so much of the time as doctors, that's what we say. Well, you need to do high intensity exercise for X number of minutes a day. Okay. Well, what does that mean? You know, again, nobody knows, you know, so none of the patients don't know. And so a lot of times, yes, that may be our goal, 
But if they've never exercised or they're sitting on the couch all day, how are you going to get them there? So all you're going to do is overwhelm that person and not get them to get anywhere. And so often I'll just start with, I do a lot of chair exercises in my clinic where I teach people how to exercise while they're sitting. I could do small movements around the house. We build up exercises and use the, using the wall a lot. Um, I do a lot of sort of exercise where I get people to walk, but just for very short amounts of time. And that seems to be the thing of all the things people tell me. Some patients really enjoy the journaling and that's really helped them because that, again, that optimism is super important. When you feel hopeful, you will motivate to do things. Is the fat on our bodies, is that an indication of inflammation? Um, yes and no. You know, so where you have the fat is definitely more is important. Uh, how much fat, you know, there is a role for fat. I mean, we do need some fat. So um, that's why I say sort of yes and no. The problem that most people have is they have the central paunch where they have that sort of, or some people call it the apple shape, or uh, where they have a little bit of that central obesity. And that is pro-inflammatory. Um, and so that's uh, associated with a what we call a metabolic syndrome. Um, it's associated with uh, a diabetes. Um, and so those are pro-inflammatory states. But I don't want to go as far as to say is all fat is bad because fat is actually good. It has a purpose. Uh, we need it. We need reserves, especially in you know certain climates. Wonderful. How important is sleep? Uh, depends who you talk to. Uh, I would tell you that Jyoti would say probably the number one. <laughs> I would probably say that it's definitely in the top five. Um, so sleep is super important. It's most important in the sense of that you restore your body, um, your heart rate, your sympathetic tone, which is, uh, is your fight or flight response, which is what is indicated when you check your pulse. When it's elevated, um, it's usually, I find that if you just sleep a little bit more, you allow your body to recover and restore, that sympathetic tone goes down and your heart rate goes down. So I often ask my patients or people who call me to say, well, why don't you check your pulse? What, what's your pulse? As part of my exam is to ask them what their pulse is, um, because I want to understand sort of uh, that's often an indicator of how much sympathetic tone they have, because it's not natural to have a heart rate in the 90s, for instance, which is what a lot of people do. They're walking around with heart rates in the 90s. And so often the time they come to me with symptoms because um, they notice their heart racing or they feel their heart in their ears or they feel uh, uncomfortable when they lie down because their heart is pounding. It's true. And I think we're like a, in this in, in, our, in, in this day in society, it's like we're a society where we're always on. Like anyone can always find you and catch you on your phone or we're on our phone so much that I think sleep is not prioritized when that's where a lot of the healing can also happen. Yeah. I have a do not disturb on my phone at 10 o'clock. Oh, wow. That's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. I do not disturb at 10 and it doesn't come off until seven. Now I'm awake at five usually, um, but I don't uh, take my do not disturb off until seven. Yeah, I think that's really something that we all need because that's definitely not prioritized in many people's lives. Yeah, I think social media and email um, and this need and access, everybody can get you all of the time. I mean, I get grief when people say they texted me and I didn't respond for eight hours. Oh, like, wait a second. I, I didn't know, like, if I'm not on call um, for, the, for the hospital, which is when I do have my phone on, if I'm not on call, what is, why does it, why is there some un unsaid rule that... I have to respond to a text message within X number of seconds, you know, and 
people are watching. I don't even know how to do it, but there's, I guess there's a check mark on your phone when your text message is reviewed. Um, and people will say, well, I know that you reviewed it. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I go, Wait, what? So there's a way to, you know, and like, why are we so like, controlled by our phone. You know, even if I've reviewed that text message and I don't, I choose not to respond, that's my choice. There should never be this rush to do things so fast. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, it is really crazy. How do you feel about fasting? Oh, sure. So, um, intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding has some interesting data because what's happening basically is is most of time restricted feeding is when you when you eat for maybe four to seven hours or eight hours or some of my patients who I have on a fasting plan um, they I might have them fast for twelve hours but in general it's about a four to six hour eating period and then the rest of the time you don't eat um, and so what happens in that period when you're not eating is is that there's no sugar in your body or there's less sugar and then your body makes something called ketones and it breaks down ketones and there's some data coming out that ketones the production of ketones in your body is actually very good for longevity um, and it's good for as an anti-inflammatory. I think that data is really compelling. Um, I think it's coming along. I don't think we know for sure, but I think that there is something to it. So I do like the concept of intermittent fasting. I do it with my patients, certain ones, depending on, again, everybody gets a different plan. Um, and I periodically and often actually intermittently fast. Most of the time I intermittently fast because I do think that most people eat too much and we eat too much in the evenings when at the time of day when we do almost nothing, we're eating the most. Um, and I, so I often cut people off um, from eating um, depending on the person somewhere between, you know, somewhere in the evenings. Uh, I, you know, I won't, I won't give you a number because it depends on the person. Um, and so the data on sort of um, losing weight, longevity, and anti-inflammation in terms of fasting is interesting. I think that there's more to be found, and I think it's going to be, I think we're going to find really positive things about intermittent fasting over time um, in terms of long-term data. Interesting. Do you do that for your own health, to maintain your own health? I do. Um, I do because I don't believe that we should be eating in the evenings anyway. So I don't eat, uh, typically have dinner. Uh, I will, you know, once in a while, but I don't, um, I don't really think that we need to be eating that much in the evening. Interesting. Oh my gosh, Dr. Agarwal, thank you so much for your powerful knowledge and your humanity. Thank you. Oh, that's kind of you to say, you know, we're all just doing the best we can and uh, that's all I'm doing over here. And I just hope that somebody who's listening might feel empowered and say, you know what, I'm going to make some changes. I'm going to make my health important. My body's important. And I'm going to do what I need to do to make it better. And I think you're really making the world a better place. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Good talking to you. Oh, Thank Take you care. so much, Dr. Agawal. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Lost or Found. Are you looking for a unique perspective to help you gain insight into your health and well-being? Schedule a virtual wellness visit with Dr. Michelle Choi by going to our website, drlostorfound.com. Please subscribe and follow Dr. Michelle Choi on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.